Coming up on episode two of Off Air with Joe and Oral. Oral gives his take on the Astros scandal. Dave Roberts takes us through his day-to-day life and the decision-making of a modern big league manager. And then wait until you hear who we're going to bring on the show next week as our first non-Dave Roberts special guest. All that and more coming up on Off Air. Oral, I haven't worn jeans in like 32 or 33 days. What? You Are you putting jeans on? I am, and we're actually doing laundry and jeans, and sometimes I have gym shorts on, but my legs get cold. I've actually only seen you in gym shorts a few times. It's always kind of alarming to me. Not that you have like bad legs or anything. It's just, it's jarring. I'm so used to seeing you. <laughs> bad legs. No, we're, I said you don't have bad legs. I know, but we're not John Miller. We don't have like a sport coat on top and then black shorts on the bottom and flip flops. No, I don't think you're supposed to share John's secrets either. But uh, <laughs> too bad. Seriously, though. Okay, so like, yeah, the last time I put jeans on would have been, I think, March 15th when I was at the Pac 12 basketball tournament. And that's kind of the day that uh that everything shut down wow no i'm i'm wearing jeans almost every day uh not that i'm ashamed of my legs but i just do it for warmth and we've got the house at you know probably below 72 a lot of the times so i'm not saying i have shorts on every day but there are more comfortable pants than jeans sweats or your lululemon or something like that yeah travis matthew makes some great uh, travel pants that I throw on. Or, yeah. And we, I, we got to get you some of those. How about haircuts? You have, you, have you had a haircut in a while? There's another question. No, it is getting <laughs> long, man. You should see my, my uh, son's hair. He's 16, 17 months and has yeah. hair. I don't know where he got the curls. May be another conversation yeah. for his mom, but uh, his hair is out of control. I think there's going to be some nasty looking hair coming out of this. Yeah. Thing. Well, we got to be come clean to the listeners because we're seeing each other on Zoom, so we, we don't are. talk over each other. So I do what see do you your think? hair growing what do you <laughs> from think? week to week. What it's do you not think? Bad. It, I've I liked your hair last year than when we first met, and I think you've done a much better job getting more L Aified. So we have we've officially decided that that this hairstyle is better than the spiky hair that I broke into the show with. Yeah, but you definitely have changed age groups too. You know, you're getting a little bit more mature. Right, we've two kids, gotten older. South Pass, you know, you're doing you're doing a lot of L.A. things now. And I guess this hair. See, I, somebody told me that the hair looks like a 1920s speakeasy owner, and I didn't know if that was good. Well, maybe you'll make enough money to own one someday. I don't know if that has anything <laughs> to do with my hair, though. <laughs> okay, um, it doesn't. Yeah, I've, I've been bulking too. Can you tell in the video? Uh, a little bit. You've got this you medium really shirt see, on. Though. You didn't yeah, even know what medium when we met and I said that. You didn't know what medium met, did you? Yes. Okay, all right. I'm with medium. It's medium. I think I probably taught you. Well, I, I used to be an extra large, and I'm thinking about going down to large, so I look like I have a few muscles. <laughs> Speaking of, how's the diet going? How's the workout going? Uh, we just got off a three-day juice. So, uh, yeah, we went to, uh, I'm not giving any advertisements that this is where we, I think it's fresh press or press. Dana went and picked it up. It was the curbside pickup. And we, mm-hmm. I did a three day, uh, cleanse 
and she did a half day, three half day cleanses with a salad at the end. So, uh, I dropped six pounds. I don't think it was fat though. That's gotta be just cleansing stuff. Yeah. That's not, but do you feel yeah. good? Do, like, oh do yeah. You feel- I felt great. I felt great. And it, it uh, continued, uh, from podcast one, episode one, where I said, I'm going to get more diligent and get better. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a motivating force. For sure. I've never done a cleanse. It sounds awful. <laughs> there are parts of it that are awful. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so we're, we're into episode two now. I had yeah. a lot of fun doing episode one with you, and it sure was cool. Thank you to everybody who listened and sent in yeah. kind thoughts, kind words, gave us feedback. We're always looking for that in everything we do. So anything you want to hear more of, anything you want to hear less of, please send it along. But I know I speak for both of us, and I'll let you speak for yourself too, but well, we've no, been blown, blown away by the response. Totally blown away, Joe. And it's un, It was unbelievable, the positive responses. And I think it just shows not how much there's love for us, but how much people miss baseball. And, yeah. and we're just a big part of that because of our voices and where they're doing the games. And God, do we miss doing the games? Yeah, I know. It's... Yeah, I miss the roar of the crowd like we talked about. Miss the roar yeah. of the crowd. Miss the drama of the moment. Uh, as advertised, we're gonna we're gonna get some thoughts from you about the Astros cheating scandal, and so this whole thing comes down this winter. At least the details of it, the report comes out while you're in Vegas and I'm in LA, and so we're not seeing each other every day. We're not having conversations about baseball every day how we do during the season. I saw you for the first time after the off season at FanFest in late yeah. January. And I was interested to get your thoughts. And it became very clear to me right away over a glass of wine or two that this hit you at a really deeply seated place. It's, a, it's an emotional topic for me. And I, I hope I can get through this podcast without getting too emotional because it's on the backdrop of how great my life has been. And, and when I think about Everything that the fans have given me because of the win in 88 with the Gibson home run and with the team and Mickey Hatcher's unbelievable performance and the whole team and Tommy running on the field and the whole win and I'm going to Disneyland. If I think about all of those things that the fans remember and how much smile equity and laugh equity I have in my life, how many great stories that I get every time I see someone or talk to someone about where they were or what it meant to them in their life, I think about. JT and Clayton and Kenley and the guys, Brandon Morrow, that don't have those conversations because they got cheated. And if Parker and Conseco and McGuire knew what was coming, I would be a Chihuahua, not a Bulldog. And it, it's just emotional to me because it, 88 changed my life. And this should have changed those guys' lives. They're champions in my, in my mind. They're champions in my heart. They're not champions in the books of baseball. And we can get into the punishment. We can get into cheating and what it does to a pitcher and what it does for a hitter. But for me, the emotional side of this equation of them getting ripped off killed me, absolutely killed me, because what I have gained from winning a championship in 1988 with my Los Angeles Dodgers. You said to me, and you touched on this a little bit just now, but if Canseco and McGuire and so on had the signs, not only do you probably not win the 88 World Series, but every single day of your life since is different. Completely different. I don't go to the last Reagan State dinner. I don't sing the doxology on the Johnny Carson show. I don't go 
to Arsenio Hall and Dave Letterman. I don't get to have be the highest paid player in the game the next year with $7.9 million over three years. I don't but, get smiles everywhere now, I go. Now, though. Oh, like, now. I, I wouldn't probably be the voice of the, one of the voices of the Dodgers. You know, who knows where we are? Who, who knows if I got a job with ESPN? Who knows if I got to do seven and eight years of the Little League and College World Series? Um, everything about my life changes. And nobody remembers, you know, and I hate to say it because I'm hurting the guys that are on the current team and were there, you know, a few years ago. Uh, nobody remembers the second place team. And they know yeah. that, and that's why it hurts them so deeply. Yeah, and, and, and I think about, um, the emotional toll on the guys every day when they encounter fans, they are, instead of reflecting on joyous moments with the fans that they contributed to their lives and their lives got enhanced, the players, they are deflecting. They're deflecting. They're, they're, they're like, they can't even protect themselves. They can't say, yes, we were cheated. They can't, they sound like sore losers. It's, and it comes up in every conversation with those guys because they are the, the greatest generation of Dodgers. The, the, the division title after division title after division title, the National League Championship Series, going to the World Series and not winning, it, it's really hard when I compare it in context to what I've gotten to live. We know the obvious. Okay? The hitter knows that the next pitch is a breaking ball or a fastball. And that alone is a huge deal. For the next pitch, but there are so many more layers to it than just the next pitch and knowing what it is. This is like knowing what play the opposite team in football is about to run and you're on defense. This is like knowing how the basketball team opposing you is going to, what play they're going to run and the ball's going to get inbound to the center and he's going to get the double team and then you're going to pass over here for the three-point shot. You can defend it. You know what's going on. That's the same way it is for the hitter. And the same problem it is for the pitcher. This, this is beyond cheating. This is beyond baseball. This is not even baseball. It gives them comfort emotionally to know what's coming. It gives them the ability to take the breaking ball down and in when they know Clayton's going to throw that slider that looks like a strike for 80% of the flight of the ball, which makes every other hitter in the big league swing at it. And then it breaks down and in and they swing and miss at it. They know it's coming and they spit on it. So now it changes the count. Every count to the hitter is like it's a 2-0 count. I don't care what the realistic count is. I don't care if it's 0-2 because they fouled back two pitches that they knew it was coming and they offered at them and missed it. Every count to them emotionally and physically and bat speed and when to start and where to put their eyeballs to understand what the ball might do and which portion of the plate they want to look at and what they want to swing at. Every pitch is like a 2-0 green light hitter count. Let me give you some numbers. Clayton Kershaw in the 2017 World Series at home against the Astros, gave up one run in 11 innings. He struck out 15. He walked two. Game five of the World Series at Houston. Six runs in four and two-thirds. Two strikeouts. Three walks. 51 breaking balls thrown. Zero swings and misses. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's not even the same game, and it proves it, because it's the same guy within days, at the same intensity, in the same moment, for the same prize, and all of a sudden, they're that much better at home. That, that just tells you, that's just the hugest red flag. 
And it tells you, even if you don't understand baseball, even if you've never played it at this level, even played it at the high school level or the Little League level, and you try and compare it, oh, it's no big deal that they knew it was coming. They still have to hit it. That is completely wrong, and you're on the wrong page. It is the difference between slices. Slicing the thinnest slice of abilities of what the difference in ability is between a big league pitcher and a big league hitter, and they are on a cutting edge of how their ability is going to break one way or the other. And now all of a sudden you throw a boulder onto that edge, a boulder of one side knows what's going to happen and the other side has no idea that that person knows what's about to happen. That changes. It's not even a game. I can't even say it's not the same game. It's not even on the same planet. Houston at home in 17 or in the postseason, they were 8-1. and one. The one game that they lost at home was the game that Alex Wood was extra paranoid about sign stealing and went through several different iterations of signs to make sure that they couldn't steal signs. And remember, Alex that night in game four took a no-hitter into the sixth inning, wound up allowing one run in five and two-thirds. That's the one Houston lost. The eight Houston wins at home during the postseason against starting pitchers with 31 combined All-Star game appearances. An eight ERA Hmm. for those starting pitchers. Kershaw, Sale, Darvish, Severino. (laughs) Only one game of three-plus strikeouts out of those eight with a who's who of starting pitchers. Guys that routinely rack up double-digit strikeout performances. One game of three or more Ks. So much was written about the Houston offense, too, how they did this miraculous thing of cut down their strikeouts and their home runs went up, and how many strike uh, home runs they had with two strikes. Well, if you know what's coming, it changes everything. You know what? With Alex Wood, he changed his signs so often that them watching in live action the signs of the catcher, their formulas, their algorithms could not catch up because by the time the algorithm caught up and would have read his signs and known what was coming, they switched them. They switched them that often that the math couldn't even catch up with him. And hats off to Alex Wood because he is that, I don't want to say prepared because they were all prepared, but he is that sensitive that something was going on. He was paranoid as he should have been. Exactly. You know? It's it's unbelievable. And, And what happens to a pitcher and what happens to a team? So you think about games in Dodger Stadium, but look at, Pitchers get in jams more often. They don't trust their prep. They're worried about their delivery. Am I giving away my signs in another way with my glove or my delivery? It's destroying their confidence. The bullpen use in the home game in Houston, the bullpen is up more. They're in the game more, so the bullpen use goes up. They're not as rested for when they go play in Dodger Stadium. You start to question, even when you leave Houston and go back to Dodger Stadium, the correct strategy from all the scouting and prep you've done. It is mind-boggling what it does to the defense and to the pitcher. You know what's what stinks? These are world-class hitters on Houston. That are, you know, they're some of the great hitters of this generation, and it's all tainted for them because of this. And they realize that now. But did they need to do this to be great? Maybe they needed to do it to win the World Series. I think that's kind of what uh, what you're getting at here. They but, have no uh, idea who they are. Just like the Dodgers have no idea if they'd have been champions without the cheating, they have no idea who they are. They're going to have to live with this. And everything moving forward for the rest of these guys' careers, and especially whenever the next season is for Houston, everything they do 
is going to be painted in that context. It's either going to be, wow, this guy's killing it. He must be getting the signs again. Or, wow, this guy's struggling. He needed the signs to be a good hitter. And that's, that's unfortunate because these are some world-class hitters that have now chosen to paint their reputations, and they're going to have to live with that. Yeah, I just said they don't know who they are, but we do know that they're cheaters, and, and that is just really bad for their careers, and it's terrible for the Dodger players. Um, it's, it's really even hard to put into words. Um, I think about all the guys and the emotions they went through and, and the fans. I think about the money lost, and not, not just for the big league players that are making millions of dollars. I think about the clubhouse guys and the trainers and the people on staff that would have got voted and did get voted full shares. That, that was the ability for those people maybe to buy a house. You know, you're talking about a $400,000 share down to a, like a $200,000 share where somebody who's making 30000 a year did get 200000 and that was a huge windfall for those kids, but they could have got $400,000. And to think about what the franchise values changed, the fans and the enjoyment that they lost, to think about all of them, it's ridiculous what... And the, the Houston Astros got fined $5 million and none of the players got suspended and none of them lost salary. And they still get to wear a world championship ring and they still are in the books as the world champions. That's a farce to me. That is a complete farce. Um, you think about the, the guys affected during the regular season that got blown up when they oh. faced the Astros and have not seen the major league since. Mike and, and may never. Yeah. Mike Bolsinger yep. filed a lawsuit against him. I, I'm pretty sure that he that it's been thrown out that he's not going to win the lawsuit, but he yeah. was impacted that much where he filed a lawsuit against the organization. And yeah, it's, well, the, the, you know, we could break it down even deeper. I don't want to continue to go in and I just, I wanted the fans to hear my emotional side of it and lifestyle side of it, because I think about the guys every day when they come out of the locker room and they're signing autographs for a 12 year old kid that they could be getting an autograph from a world champ. And now, they have to deflect and, and, and re-evaluate how they're going to, every moment, how they're going to talk about this. And when the fan loves them and the fan loves their ability and the Dodgers winning all these division titles, but sooner or later, you haven't won it yet, comes up. And they can't defend themselves. And so I feel like I need to, to put my two cents in and defend them a little bit. How do we fix it? How do we police it? Uh, I don't know specifically because cheaters are always ahead of the rule, rule makers. Um, there's always that competitive edge that can take you to the dark side. You know, in baseball, there's rules and the umpires call safe and out. And then there's cultural rules like in our day, my day, uh, you didn't have to be on second base. You could kind of can it be in the vicinity play. And then there's cheating. And this is where they really cross the line as far as cheating. Everybody tries to steal signs as far as from second base. Everybody tries to pick up delivery flaws of the difference between a pitcher's delivery when he throws a curveball compared to when he throws a fastball, but nobody takes live action signs and deciphers them and then relays them to the hitter with sounds or vibrations or electronic stimulus or whatever ways they've done it. Uh, Nobody goes that far. How do we fix it? We fix it by finding a way that's flawless and that you can't. The problem with fixing it, Joe, is that you have a tendency and a chance to take away from the technologies that are actually helping players, like them going back into the clubhouse and the video room to watch their last at bat. 
uh, pitchers going in between innings. Even in my generation, I would go in in between innings and watch my delivery if I was losing something to try and dissect myself. So when I went out for my warm-up pitches the next inning, I could try and fix something. So that's where I worry about the new rules of keeping people from stealing signs get in the way of people bringing the best product onto the field and the best ability. And if people are unfamiliar with what you're touching on there, one of the proposals is to remove video use from clubhouses in-game. And there is a, it's been around now, video in-game. We're talking just the game broadcast up on the TVs in the clubhouse, and we're talking the actual video room down in the you know, in the in the tunnel back to the to the clubhouse where guys can go in slow motion, dissect their swings, dissect the way that they're getting approached by the pitcher. One of the discussions has been removing that completely. Here's the big issue with that. It's been a big part of the game for long enough now where it's probably fair to say, all right, most guys, this is all they know in terms of their process and getting ready for their next at bat. One of the greatest moments in baseball would not have happened without live feed into the clubhouse. Kirk Gibson's home run. Yeah. He wouldn't have heard Joe Gargiola and Vin Scully saying he was unavailable. He would have been on the Dodger bench. He would have been watching the game along with us hurt and just watching the game. He wouldn't have heard that, which inspired him to say, get me my pants, Mitch Poole. I'm going to figure out a way to hit. That is where live broadcast into the <laughs> locker room has affected the history of baseball yeah. in another way. So the, the folks have talked about less technology. And then the other idea is more technology. Do you put lights in the pitcher's rubber as opposed to the catcher putting down fingers? Do you, I've, seen, I've seen proposals where you wear like an Apple Watch kind of thing as a pitcher and you get yeah. the signs texted to you or signaled to you somehow through that. I gave the signs to the catcher in my day when I was a veteran enough, uh, because, and the catcher put down a sign only to let my middle infielders know what was coming, but that's still not going to cause, you know, help cheating. Uh, there were a lot of pitchers in my generation that gave the signs to the catcher because I didn't want to stand out there and shake my head and, and say no for too long. I wanted to stay in the rhythm, and I wanted to go, 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 and get the ball and let's go. But uh, yeah, I think that there is going to be a technology, there is going to be a way to keep this safe. We shouldn't even be thinking about it, but yeah, we're going to have to keep this information safe and within the confines of the offense knows what the offense is doing and the defense knows what the defense is doing and they don't know what each other's doing. This is the first time that you have publicly really had a chance to share those thoughts. Yeah, and you can see that there's no way I could do it during a game. I would, I, it would be cut short and I would feel ripped off that I didn't get to say my piece and I could really, you could, I could go on forever and, and how you could break this all down emotionally and tactically on the field. Let's flip to the other side of the brain. Okay. What's the best thing you saw this week? The best thing I saw this week was posted by Andrew Cotter, C-O-T-T-E-R, and it's two Labrador retrievers, not arguing over bone, but just one has the bone and the other one doesn't. And there's an announcer, it sounds like an English soccer announcer, announcing the whole thing that has very little action at all other than the bone being transferred from one paw to the other of the black lab and the young white lab staring at it and wishing he had it. And the clock is running down and I'm not going to blow the ending. Look Just it up, watch Andrew it. Cotter. It's funny. It is funny. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the accent is a big part, I think, of what makes it so funny. 
I wonder if our accents play well in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're over there in England saying, man, that American accent of his is really what sets this thing it's off. really good. <laughs> Sounds so worldly. Yeah. Uh, best thing I saw this week, it was yesterday, Governor Newsom outlined a plan to begin opening restaurants back up in conjunction with the governors in Oregon and in Washington. And everybody's first question was, what's the timeline on this? And as with anything, nobody really has a timeline. So that's the bummer part of it. But they are starting to think about what it will look like. It's not just going to be, okay, everybody's free to, to go do whatever they want. You know, they're, right. they're talking about plans of having half capacity in restaurants, servers wearing masks and gloves, having disposable uh, menus, you know, that you throw out after yep. each day. And a lot of these things sound like, like the, the, the menus that you throw away, probably going to be the new normal. I, I hope it's not the new normal, but it definitely has a chance to be. And so I think, you know, anytime we're starting to ramp up, anytime we see the, the dampening of the curve and, and incidents of ICU and deaths start to go down, uh, then we have a feeling that we're getting closer to normal. But, uh, I, I trust America. I trust the American people to do what's right and to follow the guidance. And uh, that's what's been so exciting about, for me, through these negative times that uh, people are following directions and doing what's right. And we're, we're beating this virus. And hopefully we do closer, get closer and closer back to normal. Let's get to Dave Roberts. We are joined again by Dave Roberts, and as we're going to do each week, we're going to start it with a smile, with a positive thing. Doc, what's the best thing you saw this week? Well, I, I think the best thing I saw this week, uh, I, I saw numerous TikToks that were very, uh, a lot of uh, levity and comic relief, but I think the best thing I saw was uh, ABC, NBC coming together um, separately, as well as Google and Apple, you know, so you get these. Uh, network in uh big wigs and uh and apple and google coming together to do good um for what's going on right now with this pandemic and with funds and stuff kind of coming together so now we got competitors coming together for for a greater good so for me that was pretty exciting to see love it moving forward getting us back to to normal life hopefully sooner rather than later and i'm sure you're doing the same thing it's hard not to glance at the baseball schedule, what was supposed to be the baseball schedule, and think, well, tonight would have been this, or we would have been in this city. Tonight and today is Jackie Robinson Day. Dodgers would have been playing the Cardinals tonight. It's a special day across baseball. We're all biased, but I think rightfully so, that it's extra special at Dodger Stadium, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it, it really is. And I remember 2004, was the first year that Major League Baseball had the initiative for Jackie Robinson Day where they you basically had one player on each team that could wear the 42 jersey. And I was the player um, designated on that particular day. So I wore my pants up and I just couldn't wait to get on base and, you know, be like Jackie and get my uniform dirty. But wearing that uniform, that Dodger uniform, um, as Jackie for that particular day was pretty special. But then to now see it evolve where players, coaches, and obviously you see fans with their 42 jerseys um, on Jackie Robinson Day is just amazing. And so to sit here in our homes right now and, and talk about it is one thing, but man, guys, to be on that field and to see all those fans wearing that 42, the players, it, it's pretty special. 
I think about Nuke, I think about Campy, I think about Martin Luther King, and of course, Jackie on this day. Dave, when you got on, did you think about stealing a base? It was in both of your pockets as part of your resumes. Absolutely. I mean, goodness. And the thing, the only thing or all the problem was, and I don't recall that one particular game, but uh, great advice that I got is that you can't steal first. So <laughs> I, I had to figure out a way to get on first base. But if I did, I, I'm pretty certain that, that I ended up stealing a base. Uh, as this quarantine rolls on, we continue to try and find ways to kill time and uh, make use of our time. What have you been reading? Well, I, I, I've been reading this book called uh, Chop Wood, Carry Water. And, and as you guys know me, I'm really big on, on leadership and trying to grow and get better. And it's kind of a very Zen, Eastern world kind of mindset mentality and just the simplicity of just chopping wood and carrying water. And it kind of lends itself to process. So um, it, it's just something that I believe in and it just kind of helps me grow in, in this time. And another book I'm trying to, I'm going to tackle is a book my wife's been trying to get me to read. It's called American Dirt. And um, I don't know if you guys have read it. I don't know a no. whole, can't give you a whole lot of color, but that's the title. And it comes highly recommended from a well-read woman and my wife. So um, she knows that I'm not much of a reader as far as novels, but so for her to recommend it, I, I think it'll be good. We were texting uh, this week. We were texting this week, Doc, about a book that I'm reading, Stillness is the Key, which is kind of similar to what you're talking about, the chop wood carry water. There's actually a chop wood carry water reference in Stillness is the Key with Sean Green uh, before his four home run game. So he was in this miserable slump, and you were there to see this, Dave. He was in this miserable slump, and he said to himself, okay, I'm, I'm done thinking. I'm just overthinking everything, and went into this series in Milwaukee, up to the plate, repeating over and over, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. Next thing he knows, he hits four home runs. It's it's amazing, and I was there for that. I was uh, wasn't in the lineup. There was a lefty that day, so I was on the bench. <laughs> but uh, but no, I remember very vividly that up until that point, Sean was really struggling, and the noise, the pressure, the, the he wasn't living up to the contract, all that kind of stuff was kind of getting into his mind. And so I did not know he was kind of into that. I knew he was kind of, he's a very cerebral guy, one of my really good friends. And so I remember that day in Milwaukee, it was the third game, it was a Sunday, and uh, he just went off. It was just epic. And for me to be a part of it, and honestly, guys, from that point on, he went on a tear. As he continued to use some of the Eastern philosophy you mentioned, and that's not anything I've ever really gotten into, but the more I read about it, the more... Man, there's a lot of good stuff to take from that kind of thinking. Absolutely. And it's funny is that I, I think in all things, there's, it, it's a combo and, and it's a blend. And I think that, you know, I challenge our guys, you know, each year as far as black and white, are you in or are you out? And, and I say that in the context of when you're trying to win a championship and, and win for the Dodgers, you know, you're either in or out. There's no kind of middle ground. But I do think that in, in a lot of things, um, there is that gray. In most things, there is that gray. And I think that that Eastern, Western kind of mindset, the stillness, and, and kind of as this is kind of the, the theme of what we're going through all, being still and the reset, being with our families. So that sometimes gets uncomfortable to have quiet and peace and you're being at home. And obviously, we're all quarantined with family. But there is some good, I think, that can come out of it. So for me, reading this book 
kind of slowed things down, get, got me to be a little bit more introspective and I think it's going to help me going forward. Skip, there's so much about your personality, really the whole personality that is so, it rings true. And I absolutely love you for how everything rings true. But how do you move from book smart to not being preachy and really have it be integrated into your life so it comes so natural from you? Because I, I don't feel like I'm talking to somebody who just read a book on wisdom and now is trying to give it to me. I'm talking to a real person that it's, that's part of you. Who lives it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'll tell you, Oral, coming from you, it, it's, it, it just... It just blows me away to get a compliment from you because I think the same of you. But I think it, it just kind of comes to being sincere. And I think that for me, it's, it's funny is that, you know, it's interesting as I, a mentor of mine told me this and it was really kind of, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And he just said, Dave, let me tell you what you, what's got you to this point. And this was when I first became a manager. He's like, what got you to this point? All these things that made you who you are, you're going to have to kind of put to the back burner and put away to now become a good, if not great coach or leader of men. And some of the things that he mentioned to me were my stubbornness. Um, I was a very stubborn player. And I think that when you're convicted about something and how you prepare, there's got to be some stubbornness to you. But then as a manager, you can't be stubborn. You've got to be open to new ideas and hear criticisms. And I was very, um, you know, I wasn't a good listener. And so I, I wanted to get my voice heard. But then when you're trying to lead men, uh, you have to be a good listener because their voices is what matters most. So if you can't hear them, you're not going to get the buy-in. So those are some of the things that I learned. It was just interesting to me that um, I felt what got me to be a major league player and to play 10 years, I'm going to have to kind of put all that away, which is now interesting, guys. It's helped me become a better father, a better husband. Um, and, and a better leader of men. So I think to your point, Oral, is I just try to be sincere, and I'm always trying to get better. And I do think that the players um, know that the, the, the method behind my madness is to, to, to make us all better. Yeah, we hate this baseballist world we're in, where we you know we don't have that day to day grind. We talk about the day to day grind is like how do you get through this? But now that we're not in the grind, we're looking for any kind of semblance of it we can find. Take us today, Doc. The plan is you're going to take us inside what part of the day-to-day grind looks like. A, a, let's call it a, a 7 p.m. home game during the regular season. Begins how for the manager of the Dodgers? I think the first thing is getting up and going for a walk, uh, just kind of thinking about the day, the lineup, who we're playing, and just to get outside. I think that that's very healthy for me. I, I uh, And I say that the walk, that's the goal. So I can't say that I I practice it every single day, but I try to be diligent with that. And then I get to the ballpark probably, you know, I'd say right around noonish. And so at that point in time, I'm checking in with um, the trainers and just trying to make sure guys are where guys are at as far as health. Um, have some lunch and some of the front office guys come down. Andrew uh, will talk and, and catch up on some potential moves. Uh, roster situations and anything kind of the state of the order as far as how the players and, and how we're looking uh, the game that night and just kind of thoughts and that they could add and help. And then the players start filing in. I sort of make my way around the weight room and uh, the food room. And so kind of guys are getting ready and, you know, and you guys know, I like to touch and have a conversation uh, with every player. 
and staff on, uh, you know, in the organization. So I kind of make my rounds and see what everyone's doing. Then there's some video that comes into play and our hitting guys, uh, the pitching guys, they kind of do their respective preparation. But I think for me, I like to have the overview of the starting pitcher and kind of see what my eyes see. So kind of layer that on with the information that we're getting and what they think and some of the hitters and how they're swinging. Then I'll look at kind of reports that we get brought down from uh, to the coaches from the front office and, and tendencies. And I like to look at the sample size of the recency. So that, and then the coaches start filing in and then we start kind of going over the game as far as playing it out a few times in our head and going over different scenarios. Cause as you guys know, um, every game is different. That's what's great about this game is you can kind of plan it, script it as much as you want, but it sort of never plays out that way, which is, <laughs> which is obviously a great thing. So that's kind of the start of it. Then the, then the BP, the media, and if I'm lucky enough, I get you guys in my office so we can chat up a little bit and, you know, get your insights. And you guys are so good about trying to get some nuggets that you can use on the broadcast. And so I just love those conversations. And then it kind of gets into BP and kind of all that. Skip, I'm going to stop you right there and rewind before we get into a game or something like that and think about generations prior. Not as much communication was expected from the manager to his player, to his staff, to his trainers. They were kind of the the king and on the throne, and you kind of approached him to barely touch the edge of his garment, you know, and if he came to talk to you, that was a big deal. Don't you feel this generation expects you to communicate with them even more, and even not to the beginning of your day, even the day before they want to know about tomorrow, don't they? Absolutely, and the thing is, is that, you know, Without a doubt. And I think that it speaks to one part of it is how times have changed, because I know that, you know, you had one of the greatest of all time as far as a player's manager, a guy that was personable in, in Tommy. Um, but for the most part, it was a dictatorship. And and, I, and it was actually Tommy's way of the highway anyway. But yeah. <laughs> I, I do think nowadays there's got to be that conversation. And, and I think that that's a good thing, because I think that the way teams use players now, uh, the way players are built um, to ask why and to, to really, and, and I think that's a good thing. And, you know, and you see how we manage our roster. There's a lot of sacrifice and expectations um, asked of our guys. And so I think that to be able to give them a heads up when they're going to play, and, and I try to look out a week in advance, but right. sometimes, you know, changes of pitchers and things like that, injuries change that, but I try to be as open as I can. Yeah, leadership back in my day, in our day, you know, immediate respect, immediate, that's the leader, that's the guy. It's almost has to be more earned now. And you're almost like managing a conglomerate of 25 companies on a daily basis. And even more with the media and with the front office and with ownership and everything that you have to deal with, where I know the relationship between let's just pick a general manager and Fred Clare, and then Tommy Lasorda as a manager and ownership as the O'Malley's. Those three were a unit that you really never got to talk to or be around. You talked to Tommy, you talked to Fred, but it was just in passing. But there was no suggestion on how to run the Dodgers or how to run a game or how to all the information that you communicate and, and are negotiating and kind of getting people to buy in and sell out for you and get your respect. No, no doubt. That's a, that's a great point. And I think that, you know, things are evolving, have evolved, and are continuing to evolve. And that's in, in sports, you know, outside of our industries. And, and I do think that, you know, you, you talked to, and I 
was texting back and forth this morning with Fred Clare, and he's coming out with a book at some point, and uh, just such a good friend. We were talking about Jackie, and that relationship, that three-headed monster that you were talking about certainly was true, but I just think that now where even in the position I'm in, especially in the position I'm in, I welcome so much different information uh, that can potentially make me better because I think that I look at something from one lens, but to have different people come from different perspectives is only helpful. And there's not a, there's a, I mean, any given day, you can see JT or Clayton or Austin Barnes talking to Andrew Friedman or Brandon Gomes in the front office or Stan Caston pops down and, and he's talking to players or, or staff. And you and can't be that, sensitive. You and can't, you can't be sensitive. Go, what are they talking about? <laughs> no, that's right. No, because we're all in together. And I think that how we get there, you know, that's a conversation and always to be challenged. But I think that you have to know going in that everyone's interests are aligned. And I think that's what we have with the Dodgers. So I do think that sometimes people, you know, and, and everyone, you know, there's a, there's a CEO, there's a board that you have to, to answer to. That's the way businesses are run nowadays. And I think for me, I welcome it. And along those lines, and I guess you've probably kind of answered it partially, but Oral and I both hear from people this question, and I'm sure you get this question too. Does the front office make the lineup? They do, they do not. They don't make the lineup. And it, it, it's funny is that it became kind of funny early, but then you know, four, years, four years removed or, or past my first year, um, and we're, we still have that come up, which is crazy. Um, but you know, it's information as far as, Hey, this guy plays six in a row and there's been tendencies where he gets fatigued and his body doesn't act right. Now we're trying to get up preventing injuries. And so that's information that's saying, Hey doc, this is what happens. Uh, this pitcher after back, after back to back nights, velocity starts to dip. Potentially there might be fatigue keeping on it. So that might be a situation of, as I look at a sample and said, hey, after two days, this guy is down. We're going to stay away from him. seven days. This position player, you know what? He slows down. All the metrics say that we got to give him a blow. And it's like, that's the thing that where I can't, I can't possibly know all this information that this is stuff that's suggested to me. And ultimately, I have to make a decision. But a lot of times, you know, I'm looking at trying to keep guys healthy, keep guys fresh, keep guys involved. And, you know, so. As far as does the front office make the lineup, absolutely not. But do I take recommendations? Absolutely. And I, you guys know this, is that when I played, I, I hit leadoff uh, a game against uh, Randy Johnson, a couple games. And I had no business hitting leadoff when Randy Johnson towed that rubber. But that's just the way baseball was. So now for me to be able to take in understanding roster or, or lineup construction, because I can't sit here to our guys each night and say, hey, guys, our only goal is to win one baseball game, just to win tonight. And then for me not to set the lineup, that echoes that. And that's with the pitcher, the relievers potentially available on the other team. And now when I put together this lineup to put our bench in the right spot to get a potential matchup in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, all that stuff goes into one particular game. So if I'm not taking the information I'm getting from the strength coaches, the front office, the trainers, then I'm not doing my job and not doing the best for the Dodgers. You mentioned you got us to BP and your schedule, the time between BP and the game. What are you having for dinner? How are you uh, loading up, getting ready for the grind of the night? So um, the, the best night is when we can get uh, sushi, sushi, sushi Ooh. Friday. And uh, 
Daisuke was a guy that worked in our PR and, and um, Bar Hayama is a restaurant that they cater on Fridays and nothing against Tyrone. Tyrone's our in chef, uh, in house chef, and he is amazing. But we get sushi. But if sushi is not your thing, you don't. Want I mean, that's right. Sushi, I mean, we all have you know? our specialties, like, you know. Yeah. And so no, but it, it's so after BP, I get my get my. That's kind of my last meal uh, before the night's over. So I get my meal. I again recircle back with some of the guys uh, in in the uh, food room, talk to the uh, trainers, and get my eat on. And um, at that point in time. Uh, coaches in there. We start talking about the game and and how we're going to use the pen and again just finalize things because after BP guys are throwing and you know some guys you know might feel better than they did the, the pitchers the relief pitchers specifically um, after BP some guys come in and say I just didn't feel good so I got to make sure I stay away from them and this is kind of stuff that's under the kimono that I can't divulge obviously to the opponent. So sometimes, you know, I got to play coy because I don't want to show my hand. So you got to kind of, you know, present something that might potentially not come into play. So this is actually a good conversation so you can kind of see what's under the hood. Um, But then there's a little bit of time. I try to take, you know, 10 minutes where I just can slow things down because up until that point, there's so much, it's fast paced. There's a lot going on. And there are times where the anthem gets on me and then the game starts and I just haven't caught my breath. And that's a bad feeling when it just seems like it's going too fast. So that 10 minutes that I can slow down sort of resets me. Skip, I'm going to take you through a game and not specific game, but just a game. And I, th- I think I'm going to break it into three segments and I can't break it into three segments. Like it's going to be the first three innings, the middle innings, and then the end of the game. Um, but I can't take you through a two-hit shutout by Clayton when his pitch count's under control. I love those games. And, yeah. and you're just getting guys, all right, that's not a decision-making game. I'm going to have to take you in the three segments to some problems in each segment that you tell me how maybe you you know talk about and think about the decisions. So first three innings of the game, and the str- starter is struggling. His pitch count's getting up there. Uh, they've already, you know, you've already given up three or four runs. You're in a key game in the series. We're near the end of the year. And you need to make sure, you know, this game gets turned around and you don't have a problem with your bench. You don't have a problem with your bullpen. Everybody's available. What do you start thinking about as you're watching that, that starter struggle? So at that point in time, I'm looking at where we're at with our, with our pen. And, and obviously I know who's available, but now when you're talking about covering uh, five, six innings, that's a different, uh, different you know, horse of a different color. So now you've got to introduce more relievers. And so I think at that point in time, I'm trying to figure out where our guy is at as far as pitch count. How much longer can we push him to still keep us in the ball game? Um, wh- how we're seeing the opponent? Because if we're still taking good swings and I think that we can put some runs on the board, then I think that that also plays into the equation. So I think for me, at that point in time, if you guys have seen the way you know, I manage a game. I think that I have no problem using a higher leverage guy in the fourth inning because if, let's say, Oral, your situation was we're down three runs after two, let's say. So in the third inning, pitch counts up. It's uh, one out. He's walked a guy first and second base. I might go to a high leverage guy at that point in time because that third inning, if we can get out of that inning right there, and be down 3-0 after 3, I still believe we have a chance to win. But I think the old school, what happens is that when you're behind early, you go to that 
least leverage reliever. And you're almost kind of conceding because you're at your least leverage. But I think that the way I feel with our ball club, we always have a chance to win. And so I think that firing that bullet right there in a leverage spot, because that could be the game. Leverage doesn't always have to be in the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. So I think that once we get to that point, and if it works out, we can still see how the game goes on. But if it doesn't, then you kind of a little bit wave the white flag to play for the next day. Before Oral takes you to the next stage of the hypothetical game here, take us into the mechanics of how this all works. Who are you having conversations with, and how is this information getting relayed? Well, that's where in years past it's been with, with Rick Honeycutt and um, Josh Bard, who we have back, um, who's now in the bullpen again. Mark Pryor was in the pen. Now he's a pitching coach. So it, it's more of those guys. Um, Danny Lehman is a guy that's on our coaching staff. You know, and I understand the roles of guys. So we kind of just having a little back and forth and making sure I get guys potentially ready and try to get ahead of it. Because the problem is that, you know, once you get a guy ready and hot, you don't want to dip into that too many times because then you essentially you're burning them. So, and I don't like because it, it what people got to understand is that when you get a guy up and he's hot, it's almost like you're in the game because he's already ripping it. And so you don't want to kind of get him going and then not use him and then hope you can use him two, three innings later because it doesn't always work like that because whether he can go, but the stuff might not be as sharp. So, those are conversations I have with those coaches. Uh, Rick, you can delete this if it's not allowed to be in a podcast, but it is a podcast, so I'll share some baseball lingo. That would be called a dry hump. You get a guy up and, <laughs> and don't bring him in. Uh, Oral, take us into the next stage you want to hear from Doc. I tell you what, you know, there's so many scenarios we can go into, Doc, but you get into the middle innings, that equation that you've been weighing in your head, which uh, what I love about it, it wasn't statistical. It was eye test stuff. It was feel for the game stuff. It was, are we having good swings against the opponent? Is my guy losing it? Were these hits cheap and we're down by three and I can leave him in there? So now you're into the middle innings and all of a sudden the eye test and the stats and the equations get a little tighter because you're closer to a an outcome and the key innings, the seventh, eighth, and ninth in those middle innings. Now your starter starts to struggle. Uh, you know, he's, he's close to his 15th win, which would be a career high. You know, you've got relievers. Do you start to even think about personal things about your players? So you don't lose them emotionally when all of a sudden, maybe the stats in the middle of the game, it starts to count. Well, two things. I, I think that certainly the way I evaluate and watch pitchers is the stuff. And you mentioned it, Oral, and you know, the, the, the pitch count, I think people talk a lot about, but for me, it's about the stressful pitches. And then you look at the stressful ends because, you know, you can throw, you know, 22 pitches, but you've gotten blooped and flares, making good pitches. And, and you can throw, you know, 14 pitches that are really stressful. And you're talking about the innings and that matters, the stress and, and the command the mechanics, are you losing breaking balls? The slider's not sharp anymore. You're losing the fastball arm side. So those are things that I look at as far as pitchers. But as far as, you know, you know what, you, what you're talking about, as far as the trust of the player, from day one, guys, I talk about, you know, winning for the Dodgers. And, and I think that you have to appreciate everyone's individual goals and aspirations 100%. But I think that I just can't, uh, given to concede uh, for the the greater good, and that's to win a baseball game. Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you, even one of the hardest things I had to do, and you guys saw this, was early on 
my first year, Ross Stripling was mm-hmm. throwing a no-hitter in San Francisco. And this is a guy that for two years didn't throw a- above, I think, 78 pitches, I think it was, if I can recall. Back from Tommy John surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, and and I took a lot of heat taking him out. And, and afterwards, Ross's parents were so grateful for me to take care of their son. And, you know, he's been healthy and he's here. And we don't know what would have happened if I would have pushed him past that point. And we don't, we still don't know if he would have got the no hitter, but yeah, it would have been a great featherness cap. Absolutely. And, you know, Rich Hill's another one that I, that I remember in Miami where this guy was lights out, but his finger was ripping off. There was blood on the baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, the trainer's telling me he needs to come out, and I pushed him as, as far as I could. And uh, and we don't know what would have happened, but I do know that he came and pitched well for us in the postseason. So there's things that I can't predict, but I know that the best interest for me is for the player for short and long term and for the benefit of the Dodgers. You mentioned the Rich Hill game in Miami, and then he had it Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. gosh. Oh, that night in goodness. Pittsburgh, was that not one for me? That is obviously not the outcome any of us wanted, but that is a game I will always remember. No, I, I, me too. And, and I pushed him. I think I mean, going through the ninth inning and the pitch count was great. He was just on point. I mean, the oh. breaker was sharp, the life to the fastball up in the zone. And God, we were just pulling for him. And, and no one cares more than Rich and the teammates. And, and I'm pulling for him. And, and I'm a fan. You know, and it's hard sometimes to take my fan hat off, but you know these guys, you're with these guys every single day. And, you know, I want, you know, JT to stay in there and hit three homers or Cody to stay in there and hit three homers when he's got that or, you know, Corey's got four hits and get five hits. And, but there's other things I got to manage all this kind of stuff. Um, for a good, But I love milestones. You know, the, the last three innings, all of a sudden the focus comes down to the L or the W. And I'm sure the decisions get a little tighter and a little tougher. And there's maybe even more information and more people that want to be in your ear because, you know, as pressure and fun develops, everybody wants to have a piece of it. Can you take us through the last three innings and the bullpen usage? And, and really, is it come down to more numbers now? Are you looking at more of the charts and the matchups and the reds and the yellows and the greens? Well, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, kind of logic in the sense of when you're talking about first off let's let's address a pitcher getting a win and I think that over time a, a win matters as far as a pitcher you know you see their name in the box score with the with the W the L um, so I understand that you know war and all these different stats come into play as far as to, to represent a pitcher's value but when you're a starting pitcher and oral you can speak to this that it still means something you take it personal to Get be in line for a decision to get a win when your team is there, but I think that you know if the score the game is in the balance and that pitcher is teetering with four and two thirds, I I still I've taken guys out and it's a bad look from the from the player because they want to be there they believe in themselves and and I don't want guys that don't believe that they can get the job done but my eyes you know are seeing something potentially different. And I feel like that guy coming in gives us a better chance to get out of that inning. So um, those are tough conversations. But again, it goes with what I believe gives the Dodgers the best chance to win. But as that pitcher starts to fatigue, then I start to look at the lineup and where they're at, the opposition, and who's coming up, how our guys in the pen with respect to availability match up with those guys. And I have guys that you know I feel good coming into the inning uh, to my, maybe get a grounder to get out of the inning, or we need a punch out, or you know that three hitter run 
And also you got to think about the potential of guys that they might hit for. And nowadays guys are being pinch hit for more often. So you got to know the bench and who they, what triggers uh, the manager might pull. So you got to be ready to kind of counter counteract uh, whatever move that they might, they might make. And then we get to the end of the game. You back in the, back in the office, back in the clubhouse. So you crack it open a beer and, and going through the game step-by-step. Step. What is your process like kind of wind down after a game? Wind down. There's just, it, it's a, it's adrenaline. And after, after the game, I've got a few minutes and then I've got to uh, address the media. So I kind of look at my lineup card, a win or a loss. Um, I take a quick breath and I just go over the game myself and look at the card because I got to get in front of the media and answer questions. And, you know, you want to be prepared. And I, and I think I do a really good job of trying to recount the game, what goes on every play. But again, after the game, I just kind of recount everything and, and go over it in front of the media. Uh, I guess that's, you know, I asked you about the cold beer. I guess that's a good way to segue into our top four this week. We're going to get our, our t- and I'm not saying you've got this included in yours, but our top four for this week, Doc, is top four adult beverages. What are yours? Give us number four wow, first. So, God, I've, I've had a lot of practice, um, you know, these last four <laughs> yeah, weeks on, we all. on coming up with my top four. So one drink I, I've really enjoyed um, making uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Wilson, we go out to Hawaii with our families every year in Maui, and we make these things called a sea turtle. And uh, this is with the uh, the rum, uh, the pog juice. It's it's uh, pineapple, orange, and guava. And uh, I do that with a little seltzer in there, and mm-hmm. so with the lime. So it's kind of like takes me back to Maui. So I do that, and I do the virgin one for my kids. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. I've been on this dirty martini kick for quite some time. So I, I've got the 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 olives. I, oh yeah, <laughs> I've got it. I've got it all. Make it extra dirty, and I do my got my selection of vodka. So I, I love the dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on my on refining my margarita skills. I like it on the rock with salt. So I've got this great uh, Don Julio tequila. It, it's been fantastic. Um, and my favorite one, I just opened up this bottle, guys, and you guys know I'm a wine guy. It was a, it's a Vu Telegraph uh, is the wine is the is the house, and it's a Chateau Neuf de Pop is the is the region, and that's southern France. And uh, the Bocastel uh, was what I had. So it was 2010 Bocastel Vu Telegraph was the name of the wine. And it was singing. <laughs> it just what about you guys? Price. That's right. Just went up in price. You That's love right. wine, huh? Well, I mean, wine is like a, it's a, a chunk of your enjoyment of life. It is. It is. And, and I think that, I don't know if it's the, the romance of popping a cork. I think that the stories that come with wine, the conversations when you have with people, um, the way that the wine evolves in a glass, the conversations are different. I think that, you know, I recall my first big league dinner and um, it wasn't Silver Oak. It was uh, just another Napa wine that it just in it. It just pairs with food and, and a steak and, and all that stuff for me is just really romantic as far as, you know, what you've accomplished and, and what you're trying to do. And 
I, my my daughter who's 15 can smell wine and come up with with uh, the, the aromas. My wife loves wine. My son wants nothing to do with it. Um, it. It's interesting to see now how much players are interested in wine. So I'm kind of like the on-site sommelier. So guys, hit me up for recommendations and what a wine's supposed to smell like, taste like, where to get wine, what restaurants carry the best wine. So that's been a lot of fun, but you know what? I, I can have a whiskey with anyone and I can always uh, drink a beer. Skip, I got to take you to uh, decanting wines because I used to decant all of them, but you talked about developing a glass. I love to watch the wine develop in the glass now. So decanting kind of takes it to where you need it to go like a little bit sooner and it doesn't develop in the glass quite as quick. You know, it, it, much. it does. It but does. I take it right out of the bottle now. I've stopped decanting my wines unless there's a sediment problem. Unless there's a sediment problem, you need to strain it a little bit with the cloth. But are you are you in that that arena? It, I, I am. It's like going along for the ride, Oral. It's like <laughs> you know, you, you you get to the peak of something. Once you get to the peak, if you just yeah. start there, there's only downside. So now right. you pop it, you put it in the glass, and it's tight early. Then it starts to open up starts to warm up to room temperature. The flavors start to come out. The wine gets better. It changes. I like to go along for the ride, so I'm with you. Doc, you I need a fireplace right now. Sorry, Joe. I need a fireplace. That's okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think we should do one of these podcasts sometime while we share a glass of wine. In uh, person, in. Not, not remotely like this. I mean, I, I'm fine either way. I'm not discriminating <laughs> on a chance to have the wine. Doc, it was fun again. We appreciate you so much, man. All right, fellas. Thanks for having me. You guys are the best. We'll see you next week. Okay. See you, Doc. Time for our top four. Oral, time for us to give our top four adult beverages. What's number four for you? By the time I get to four, but through four beverages, I hope I'm not slurring my words. But uh, <laughs> we, we have to drink these as we say them. Yeah, and I'm, gonna, I'm going with the least often to the most often instead of just ranking by flavor. Okay. So I'm starting out with number four is old-fashioned because that's when we go to those mixology bars or those huge, great dinners that we love, but we don't do those very often. You say we. We'll get to that in a moment. Number four for me is Moscow Mule in a copper mug. That's key. It's a different drink when it's in the copper mug. In the places you get that, do you have to give that $10 deposit for the copper mug? No, funny story though. Our, uh, our producer, Mike Levy, he and uh, him and a buddy had a night where, for whatever reason, Moscow Mules became the drink, and they drank them all night in the copper mugs. And week later, his buddy called him and said, dude, I had a box of 30 copper mugs show up from Amazon today. You've gone out and ordered them. Anyways, we promised we'd be snappier with the top four this week, and here I am telling a story. What's number three? I'm going vodka tonic just for refreshing after a round of golf, possibly, instead of a beer. So vodka tonic. Perfect. My number three is a hot day drink as well, just a cold beer. Yep. My number two is cold beer. I'm a lager guy. I'm a Stella. I'm a Modelo. I'm a El Presidente from Dominican Republic. I like the lager beers. Number two for me, uh, red wine, generically speaking, and then my very favorite red wine would be Camus Special Select. And my number one, of course, is red wine. And I've gone old world style. I'm over in Italy. I'm in Spain. I'm, I'm on the dusty side. Uh, I know that's not good for the California listeners, but there are some old world California wines that I still love, like a Diamond Creek and uh, insignia, some others. I think when the world opens back up, the first place I'd like to go is Napa. That's, oh. that's such a wonderful place. My number one is your number four, the old fashioned. Yeah. 
do you, you don't have that though as much as a, a red wine, right? But as far as favorite, if you were going to have one beverage and that's the only one you can have, you'd have an old I fashion. start just about every, I say every dinner. It's not like I'm having Whoa. an old fashioned every night at dinner. But when you go, when we go out to dinner, uh-huh. typically that's my, that's what I get the party started with. You know, if you would lie to your doctor on your questionnaire before you go in for your physical and it says, you know, do you drink? Yes. Do you drink socially? Yes. Do you, you know, and at mine, I, I, I always put very social. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, is it fair to say that you have become more of an old fashioned guy because of me? Yes, it is definitely fair to say that. Um, you know what? Because I, I, even when I, when I got into wine, I always trusted the sommelier. I just described what I liked. I didn't always know the labels. I didn't always know what region it was from. I just would just, just learn how to describe what I liked. And that's what I learned from you is just, you were new. We, we were just getting to know each other. We were traveling the road again. And all of a sudden we're at restaurants and I watch you order something. and go, you know what? I'll try that. And I, I ended up really enjoying it. I enjoy you. Oh God, this is getting deep. Uh, yes, well, hey, I'm about to take us deeper from the okay. mailbag this week. All right, at the real D boy twelve. This is on Twitter, and please send your questions to us. We'll pick one or two out each week and answer them for you. Uh, real D boy twelve wants to know what was your first meeting like? We first met. This would have been summer of 2015, mm-hmm. right? Which was the year before. I took the job to do the road games. We first met in Lon Rosen's office at Dodger Stadium late in the summer uh, before a game. And you looked very young then. I was. You know, but my first reaction was I was, I was so excited to get a full-time partner. I don't even think you signed a contract yet, right? We no, just I didn't meeting. know for sure that I was going to take the job yet. And didn't I call you or text you and say, this is going to be great? Like right after the meeting? So, yeah, we met. We, we talked for 10 or 15 minutes. I was at the game with my dad, and it was as part of the, I want to call it recruitment process, but we were in discussions with the Dodgers to see if it was going to be something that both sides wanted to do. I think we were all kind of feeling each other out. Right. We met for 10 or 15 minutes. I went back down. I had dinner with my dad pregame, and we came out of dinner, and I had a voicemail from you already, and it was a minute-long voicemail of you saying, excuse the screeching as my son comes walking into the room here. What he was just that? wants to hear the story. The screeching of the door is my, my that was son awesome. Blake breaks into the office. We'll have him on another week. Anyways, we get back, uh, and I, I have this voicemail from you, about a minute long. I may still have the voicemail. I'll have to look. But yeah, you, you just say you know, how much you think it's going to be great, and you're so much looking forward to working with me. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing, but I don't know if I'm taking the job yet. I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> But, you know, long story short, we obviously uh, decided to take the job. Yeah, I, I remember our first meeting, but I don't remember all the details that you do. I, I remember the second meeting when we went to lunch out in Manhattan Beach area at the Tin Roof, and you brought Libby and I brought Dana. And I said, you know, if this is going to work, Libby's going to really need to love California and to love the transition from the Michigan area. And so it was like really important to Dana and I to make her feel welcome and to make sure this, this transfer was going to work out for the family. And you did, and it has. And <laughs> as I've told you many times before, you and Dana are the biggest reason for us loving it here and for this job going the way that it has. Well, you are doing an unbelievable job. And, and the fans, I'm, I am so proud of our fans for welcoming you into their lives into their family rooms, onto their TVs, and and listening to us because uh, it was a big jump to move from Vin Scully to us, and uh, they have been fantastic for us. 
What are you most looking forward to this week? Keeping the curve down, keeping uh, the virus Flat. at bay, and then uh, having more and more things open up as we can. For me, and this is part of what we teased off of the top today, what I'm most looking forward to is our guest for episode three. Let's play, let's play a game here. Let's see if you can guess. He is one of the greatest pitchers of all time. He's left-handed. <laughs> it's my number upside down. Uh, yep. Clayton Kershaw going to join off air next week. You know what? When we thought about Clayton, we thought, you know, okay, we're going to have our first guest. Because Dave Roberts is not a guest. He's one of our co-hosts in a way that, you know, the title of the, is Joe and Oral, off air Joe and Oral, but it's Dave Roberts every week. So first guest needed to be somebody super, super important. We thought about alumni. We thought about current players. We thought about front office. We thought about even an actor or somebody else. And you know what? Every time we thought, we came back to one guy. And so we texted him earlier this week through a three-way group message. Clayton's in Texas with his family. And uh, I shot him a text and had you copied on that text and laid out what we were doing, told him we would love to have him on with us. He replied right away. We set up a time and he was awesome about it. And I, I just thought it was kind of odd that <laughs> you didn't respond. <laughs> and, that was this bad. is one of the greatest pitchers ever to play. You're not impressed <laughs> that you're having him on your show? <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was uh, very uncouth of me. But uh, So I responded five days later, like before we were taping this episode too. And hey guys, embarrassed. Sorry. And so glad you're coming on, Clayton. And sorry, Joe, I didn't participate in this group text. It was awesome though. Uh, awesome that, that Clayton said yes. And Hope we're going to be awesome next week having him on, getting caught up with him, and uh, just low-key hanging out with Clayton. It was fun again, my man. We'll talk to you soon. All right.